In John chapter 2, Jesus had entered Jerusalem. He had uh, entered to take part in the Passover. And after a confrontation with some of the leaders at the temple, many people were thronging to Jesus, gathering to him when they saw his miracles and his signs. So Jesus' influence seemed to be spreading, gaining steam. His fame was spreading. So surely we would say this is a good thing, right? Jump ahead, John chapter 6. A crowd witnessed his amazing accomplishment of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. So upwards of 20,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. The next day... Jesus had gone to the other side of the lake with his disciples and the crowd was looking for him and they traveled around this lake to to find him. They were looking all over for him and finally they found him. So Jesus' fame at this point is reaching such a fever pitch. These people are in this large crowd is searching him out and they're finding him and they're even, you know, uh, out there and uh, risking hunger and uh, and they're looking for him. They've, they've had to travel to find him. They're seeking him, great distance. Now they've found him. So momentum is building, right? They want to make him king. Surely this is great news. In Luke 23, Jesus had been arrested, but he was sent to a man named Herod Antipas, the, uh, the leader, um, ruler of Galilee. And we're told there that Herod was very glad for he had long desired to see Jesus because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So again, surely this is a good thing, right? Such a man who's eager to see him, who's not denying his miracles, who wants to see his miracles, surely this man uh, will probably let him go, right? This has got to be a good thing. But of course, in all of these instances, the enthusiasm and the fascination toward Jesus turned out to be nothing more than selfish, fleeting desire to get something from him. In John chapter 2, Jesus didn't, uh, we're told, entrust himself to the crowd because he saw right through them. It says he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in their hearts. In John 6, he rebuked this large crowd that came and taught them very difficult things. And that scene ends with them all leaving. In fact, many of his followers left even in John chapter 6. And then, of course, Herod Antipas, you know, he was interested, wanted to see something out of Jesus. But that, that ends with him mocking Jesus, dressing him up, and then sending him back over to Pilate, where he would, of course, be crucified. We live in a time when any enthusiasm toward Jesus is basically a sign of conversion. If a guy is interested in Jesus and wants to be involved in church, well then, let him lead the men's ministry. He's interested. He likes Jesus. He says so. If a teacher claims to be a Christian, well, he's outside of the boundary of criticism. If a young person shows any interest in Jesus... Make them a leader of the youth group. Give them all kinds of responsibility. They have some interest. We've lost, when I say we, I mean evangelicalism at large, we've lost a sound understanding of sin and conversion 
and the evangelical world is a complete train wreck as a result of it. It's in chaos. General positivity toward Jesus, and maybe throw in some good ethics, is basically all it takes to be considered a Christian by most people, despite whatever else one might believe. They're friendly toward Jesus, they say they like Jesus, good enough. And yet the scripture is full of examples of people despite uh, who, who, despite responding positively to Jesus, turn out, turns out they do not have saving faith. They don't ultimately possess saving faith. There's tons of examples. We've just seen a few so far. And so we need to understand this, and we need to know this. Now, it's not because we want to be hypercritical about everybody's claim to be a Christian, but because we need it to avoid confusion ourselves, to be discerning, and because we, we don't want to be deceived about our own standing before the Lord. And because we don't want to be uh, deceived about others standing for the Lord. We want to help other people uh, be in a right standing, be confident, be assured of their right standing before the Lord. If we don't understand that there are some people who say nice things about Jesus but don't possess saving faith, we're going to mess this up. And so this is a really important uh, teaching that we see throughout Scripture that we need to understand. And so in our text today, we're going to see that it is possible to be fascinated with Jesus and yet not possess saving faith. It is it's possible to possess something that is merely fascination, but without any deeper substance of true faith, saving faith. And so we're looking at the danger of mere fascination with Jesus. I say mere because, of course, anyone who is truly saved most certainly uh, is interested in Jesus. Uh, that, that's a good thing. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. But I say mere because if that's all it is, if there's nothing more to it than just <laughs> interesting then that's not truly saving faith. So our three points for today, uh, the first is that mere fascination with Jesus can look legitimate. It's verse 22. Secondly, mere fascination with Jesus will be exposed. You see that in 23 to 27. And then mere fascination with Jesus masks sinister unbelief in 28 to 30. So first of all, mere fascination with Jesus can look legitimate. That is, it can look like real faith. So, we're in Luke chapter 4. You remember the context. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30, but uh, you, you remember the context. It was read earlier, and uh, it was preached last week. Luke is, is telling us an account of Jesus' teaching here uh, as he begins to transition, Luke, transitioning his book into the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and he starts out with this example of his teaching. It's a representative sample of his teaching. It's not the first thing he taught. Uh, we'll see that even today. Uh, he had been in Capernaum previous to this. Um, but it's, a rep it's representative of what he taught. It's programmatic of his ministry. So Jesus here is in his hometown of Nazareth. And as we saw last week and read earlier, he opens the scroll. That he's handed the scroll. He opens uh, the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from chapter 61. And then he sits down. And this is normal way of teaching. And then everyone's looking at him, waiting for what's next. And he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's saying, this, I fulfill this. So if you'll recall, 
from last week, in doing this, Jesus is saying that he is the servant Messiah that Isaiah talks about, who in, in the book of Isaiah is the one who brings about this great salvation of God that Isaiah is talking about. The, the, the important figure of the book of Isaiah and of the whole Old Testament, ultimately, Jesus says, I am him. And so this is a, an enormous claim, a massive claim. He's saying he is the Messiah. And so then in our section today in 22 to 30, we're going to look at the response and the aftermath of this claim. So read again with me verse 22. So he says today, this is, scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So the, the challenge of these verses of, of 22 all the way to 30 one of the challenges of this section is the shift in response, right? So it begins quite positively here, right? They speak well of him. They're, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're interested in what he has to say. They're marveling at it. And then as we get to the end of this section, it ends in a murderous rage. They want to throw him off a cliff by the end of this. So that's a fairly large shift, right? Speaking well of him to we need to kill him. That's a, that's a significant shift. So how do we account for that? What's, what's happening? What's this initial positive response all about? In, in the uh, Greek text, it's not quite as obvious that this initial response is positive. Uh, it's not as obvious as it is in our English translation. So uh, where it says here in the ESV that all spoke well of him, it's more literally, or woodenly, all testified to him. So this could be a positive thing as it's rendered in the ESV and in most English Bibles. Or it's possible to view this negatively. That all testified to him, meaning all testified against him. It's the same with the statement of the people marveling. It's possible to view this word marveling, this amazement, uh, to not necessarily be a good thing. So an example of that in, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, Jesus uh, marvels at the people's unbelief. Well, he's not impressed by it, right? He's, he's disturbed by it, and yet he's amazed by it, but it's a negative sense there. So it's possible uh, that this could be negative. So some argue that the reaction from start to finish from the people is all negative. They testify against him. They're amazed at his words, which they think are blasphemous. And so with that understanding, uh, the response is negative from start to finish, uh, there is no sudden change. There's no tension really there. Uh, they're just against him from the start. However, uh, this view is not sufficient. And I would say that the way it's recorded in the ESV is uh, the correct way to understand this. That they do, in fact, respond positive. One reason for that is that this, this phrase, testifying to him, is typically used in a positive sense. And certainly in Luke, that's the way he, he typically uses it. It's positive. Uh, plus, we're told they're marveling at his gracious words. So we'll get to this in a moment. But however we understand gracious words, that's clearly a positive thing. So they're not, they're not marveling at his blasphemous words. They're marveling at his gracious words. They perceive these as gracious words. So they're impressed. There's something in his words here that impressed them. That's cause for amazement, cause for fascination with him. 
Some understand gracious words to be a reference to his oratory skills. That is, Jesus is a good preacher, he's a good teacher. They're amazed at his abilities, though they uh, fundamentally disagree with what he's saying. So some people take it that way. Uh, Daryl Bach, R.C. Sproul, two guys who take it that way. Uh, the phrase could also be translated as words of grace. They marvel at his words of grace, which could be a reference to Jesus' teaching about grace, which would imply they're fascinated with the content of the message itself. So Robert Stein, John Calvin, two men who take it that way. Regardless of which, which it is, we see clearly that they're impressed by him to an extent. His words, his teaching, it's fascinating what he's saying. They're interested. They have an interest. They're amazed by this. Whether it's the, they're amazed by the hopefulness of his message. Could this be, you know, fulfilled in front of us? Or the way he speaks of it and the way he carries it. Wow, he's really good at this teaching. He speaks well. This is fascinating. Or whether it's all of the above, they're interested. So if we all we had was verse 22, especially the first part of it, we'd think this is good. This is how they should respond. They're interested. They're amazed by what he's saying. This seems good. But at the end of 22, they then ask this question, is not this Joseph's son? So this question is an objection. They're, they're interested, but they're not in fact all in here. They're amazed by him and what he's saying, but they're also stumbling over his heritage. How can this be the servant of Isaiah? Isn't this Joseph's son? Right? We, we know Joseph. This is one of us. He's not, doesn't seem that impressive. He's, you know, his heritage is rather obscure. Isn't this Joseph's son? How can this be? Now, questions in and of themselves are not bad. It's not bad if you have a sincere question to ask it. But that's not what this is. They're not asking honestly, you know, tell us more about how this works. Aren't, you know, isn't this your father? How, tell us more of who you are. That's not what they're doing here. They're stumbling over him. They're tripping over him. And they're refusing to believe this. We'll see this even more in a bit. I think it's quite obvious by their eventual response, right? They're, they're stumbling, tripping over this, uh, what Jesus is saying. They don't believe him. Uh, we'll get to that more in a moment. But notice, initially, their response is, at least outwardly, fairly positive. Yes, they have this question, but they're fascinated by his preaching. Right? They're interested, but we have to conclude, given what happens, we've read the ending already, that this is not saving faith that they possess. It initially looks good, but ultimately it's not anything more than an outward fascination and it fails to penetrate their heart. And so mere fascination with Jesus can look good. Humans can fool humans. Right? We can trick one another. We can express interest in Christ. We can be amazed by certain elements of his teaching but this is not the sole mark of a Christian, and we must be aware of that. Again, first, so that we ourselves aren't deceived, that we don't mistake our own vague approval of certain teachings of Jesus as saving faith. Are you just okay with him? When you think of Jesus, are you, do you just think, yeah, he's all right? Are you just amused by him 
Or maybe you just like certain parts of what he says and does, but, but not other parts. Or is he your only hope of salvation? Has your amazement with him resulted in worshiping him and giving yourself to him? Has your amazement with him been accompanied by repentance, by faith, by fruit? So we need to be aware of this so that we're not self-deceived by just, wow, I'm fascinated, therefore I must be saved. We don't want to be deceived by that. Also, this matters as we consider wanting to help others be right with God. As we share the gospel with other people, anyone we witness to, our children, our goal is not that they merely take an interest in Jesus and like some of what he says. That they just stick around all of their lives in church and never leave. That's not ultimately our goal. We want them to know their great need for Jesus to be their righteousness, for Jesus to forgive them of their sin. We want them to possess a fruit-bearing faith. It must be our desire that they would throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus, knowing they're sinners and their need for Him to forgive them, knowing He's their only hope. And we must look for continued fruitfulness, fruit of repentance. Many of us grew up in youth groups where everyone was just psyched that you were there. Many of us experience that. If you're not out living like a complete and utter pagan, then you're, you know, leading things. That's kind of how I grew up. And yet, I, I was a complete mess inwardly, and my theology, understanding, was a complete train wreck. And yet, I looked pretty good outside, and no one really asked the question. I was around, and therefore, lead. The point being made here is not to turn us to skeptics of everybody's profession of faith. That's not the point. But we must be aware of this reality of non-salvific interest in Jesus. There are people who are rocky soil. They spring up. It looks like, well, they believe and they, they fall away. It's possible for people to be fascinated by some of Jesus' ethics, or amazed by his love for the down and out, or impressed that he gives people purpose in life. It's possible to really like parts of the Bible and claim to love it all. It's possible to make all of these boasts really loudly for everybody to hear. And yet it's possible for such a person to have nothing more than a mere fascination with Jesus that falls short of saving faith. So sometimes mere fascination looks legitimate. It can look like faith. Secondly, mere fascination with Jesus, though, will be exposed. So this interaction in Nazareth begins, uh, on the surface of it at least, it looks fine. Uh, but let's read and, and watch as Jesus exposes their empty amazement. So verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, 
but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus knows what's in their heart. So he just gets right to the point here. He's not fooled by their positivity towards his teaching, their testifying positively and nicely about him. What gracious words. He's not tricked by any of this. He says that what they really want to do is quote this proverb to him, physician, heal yourself. So the idea is that a doctor should begin with himself and those closest to him. Right? Taking care of his own body and those closest to him, his family and whatnot. No, no one wants to go to a doctor who does not take care of himself and those closest to him, right? That would be, we would all want out of that arrangement. No one wants to go to a doctor like that. And so in their hearts, they want Jesus to do his amazing works that he's done elsewhere, like Capernaum, he says. You know, they, they, they see he takes care of all these other people. He's doing all these nice things everywhere else. Why not here in his own town, his own hometown? Heal yourself and your people, your own people, closest to you. We're, we're the ones closest to you. Take care of us. And so he sees there's this indignation here in them about the lack of miracles that he's doing in their midst. So Jesus adds in verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Right, they're saying, isn't this, the, isn't this Joseph's son? Should we really listen to him? Why doesn't he impress us you know, with works like he does everywhere else? And so this is underneath this speaking nice of his wonderful words. They're stumbling. They're crashing against the rock of offense. And then in verses 25 and 26, Jesus tells two, gives two Old Testament stories. Uh, as a warning against them, and a rebuke to them. The first one is of Elijah, we read it earlier in the service, uh, who went to help a Gentile widow in Sidon, a Sidonian woman, during a time of great famine. So there's this this season of famine, and uh, there are many widows in Israel, Jesus said, and yet, yet, Elijah went to this Gentile woman. So in Elijah's day, the people of Israel had uh, abandoned the Lord. They were serving Baal. Uh, you remember Elijah's showdown on Carmel. Uh, and, uh, and so as a result of this, famine was sent. God sent a, a, a famine against the land as a judgment. And a further judgment on them was the fact that rather than sending Elijah to one of the widows within Israel, he sends him outside of the covenant people, to this Gentile woman. And there, Elijah performs this miracle that we read about earlier. And so this, they've uh, abandoned God, and so the Lord withholds his blessings from them, and as a judgment instead, blesses this Gentile woman. The second story Jesus tells is of God using Elisha to heal Naaman. Naaman's a Syrian, another Gentile. He heals him of leprosy. Again, it's not that there weren't any lepers in Israel. There certainly were. Jesus says as much. But they didn't get miraculously healed by the Lord. And so again, Jesus is saying this miracle for Naaman was in part a judgment against the people of Israel who had abandoned their God. A judgment against their unbelief. 
Instead, he goes to this Gentile to bring forth praise from Naaman's mouth, this commander of the Syrian army, their enemy. He ends up praising the Lord. It's a judgment against the people. And so what Jesus is doing here by telling these two stories is he's saying that the people of Nazareth are just like the people in Elijah's day and in Elisha's day. They despise the Lord. They do not trust him. They do not believe him. They despise him. They don't believe in his promise, his promises. They don't believe in the Messiah. Here he is, the servant of Isaiah's prophecy, standing before them, and they despise him. They revile him inwardly. Despite their pleasant words about him, he knows what's going on. And it will be plain in a moment for all to see. And so he presses them on it. Mere fascination with Jesus might fool other human beings. Think of the book of Acts, Simon the magician, he fooled Philip, he even fooled Peter for a time. It can fool other human beings. People can give lip service to Jesus that might look genuine to us, but Jesus is not, and he will not be fooled by it. And just as he exposes the Nazarenes here, the men in his hometown, every person one day will stand before him for judgment. And just as he saw through them, people of Nazareth, he'll see, he sees right through everybody else. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, as Hebrews 4 says. Mere fascination with Jesus is not enough because it does not save. That's the concern here. That's why this is important. Salvation comes by grace through faith and it produces fruit in keeping with repentance. So it's easier for us, certainly, to think that anyone and everyone who speaks positively in some way about Jesus will be in heaven. That would be nice. That would comfort us. We want that because we want as many people as possible to be in heaven. But we must see this and look at this honestly. That we may not, we may struggle with the concept, the reality of the narrow gate. That the way of salvation is narrow and few find it. It's better to ask yourself the question now, is my faith authentic, than to wait and be exposed by Jesus in the final judgment. Has your faith produced fruits of righteousness? Or is it what James calls a dead faith, unaccompanied by fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? Do not be deceived. Jesus sees everything. He knows all. Everything is naked and laid bare before his eyes. And so if you know that, if you know that you've grown up with that, that you've had interest, but it's been nothing more, and there has been no fruit, now is the time to repent. To see that he's your own, only hope of salvation, your only hope of forgiveness, that he's far more important than just Someone we go, hmm, he's interesting, and I'll, I'll, you know, sure, I'll show up once in a while. It's a loving thing for us to insist with one another, with anybody else, that we examine our faith, since dead faith is a real thing. 
and mere fascination with Jesus, this dead faith will not save. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus will expose mere fascination with him, whether in this life or worse yet, at the final judgment. Thirdly, mere fascination with Jesus masks sinister unbelief. What's the big deal? Well, let's see it. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus has expertly peeled back the mask of kind words and outward piety and niceties, and he's revealed dead man's bones. He's revealed rottenness. Underneath their niceties, pure malice in its most wicked form is evident. How dare he? How dare he question their faithfulness? We are Israelites. How dare you compare us to those wicked people over there? How dare you say the Lord might bypass us for others? How could you? That's what's underneath this. If you think I'm overstating it, look at their reaction. They're filled with wrath. The same people, it says, all in the synagogue. These are the same ones in verse 22, all spoke well of him. The same people switched. He said something they don't like now, and it's on. And they despise him, the mask is gone, and now we need to kill him. They're incensed. He said, he's going to do no mighty deeds in their midst, as they are hardened unbelievers. Rather, he's going to move on to others where his work will produce more fruit. And we'll see that even next week. It does produce fruit elsewhere. And their pleasantries are gone, vanished. They want him dead. And they try. They bring him up, out of town, up to this hill, that they might throw him off a cliff, we're told. So again, this isn't just sort of like, you know, they got a little heated and someone took a swing and missed and everyone, oh, everyone calms down and cooler heads prevail. No, they, they have time. They, they leave, they walk out, they're plotting what they're going to do, they're intending to take him out there, time passes, they get up to the hill, they want to throw him down, they're thinking through this and still there's time for cooler heads to prevail, there's time for them to back out of this, but no, they want to go up still and they want to throw him down this cliff and kill him. Mere fascination with Jesus doesn't save. It simply glosses over a heart that is still in rebellion against God. And that couldn't be more vividly displayed than right here. Underneath it, all spoke well of him. Underneath it, they're filled with murderous rage against him. In many ways, a, a positive but non-saving response to Jesus is more dangerous than just outright rejection. Because it looks good, it's deceiving, it fools some, 
including the people who are experiencing it, right? These people think they're right with God. They think they're doing what's right, and yet they could not be more wrong. Such a, an interest in truth, and such an interest in Jesus, knows enough to know that Jesus is important, but yet refuses to actually trust him. And in the end, it's simply a mask for what is sinister unbelief. This hasn't happened a lot, but I've seen Christians who, when asked what the gospel is or how they might know they're saved, rather than joyfully rehearsing you know, the great gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation that, you know, Their only hope is Christ and he died to save them rather than testifying to the grace of God in Christ. Instead, they fly off the handle. It's an odd experience when it happens. But the insinuation is, how dare you ask me that question? Implying that I may not understand or may not know. Now, in some questions, you know, in some cases, that question might actually be asked in an offensive manner. So that's, that's possible. But in some cases... It exposes someone who has a mask of positivity towards Jesus, but lacks saving faith. They don't know the gospel. They don't have an answer. They don't know why they should be confident that they're a believer. They can't really have this conversation because they don't have answers. And so they resort to rage, offense. The question about Jesus' heritage in in verse 22, I think we see now. It's not a sincere question. How does this work? It's revealing sinister unbelief that their nice words are disguising and glossing over. True Christianity deals with the heart, not merely our external words or actions. The Bible is clear that the human nature, that is what is corrupted by sin. And that is what is in need of being made new. We don't just need a few external reforms. We need a makeover starting from within. And so when, when all of the external words and actions are pulled away, stripped away from a true Christian, we find a person who trusts Jesus to save them and keep them. That's their only hope. We find one who knows they have nothing of their own that can commend them to God. They are one who knows their need to trust Christ in all things, even though they struggle to do it. They know that's right, and that's their great need. They are one who knows their tremendous need of God's grace toward them because they are a sinner. But this is not true of those who are merely fascinated with Jesus. Underneath, they don't really believe him. They aren't convinced about who he is, that he is truly their hope. They aren't convinced about what he says, or at least not everything he says. They might like a few things. They don't see the need to submit to him in all things, much less have they tried or really desire to. So this is a matter of utmost importance, this this issue. This whole account here from verses 16 to 30 of Jesus in Nazareth, It's programmatic for Jesus' ministry. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He has come 
to set people free. To set people free from their sin. But the cross looms over him like a shadow. He's come to set people free. He is the Savior. And yet there are those who will want him dead. And we see right this right off the bat as he begins his earthly ministry. And yet, even this, this dying, will be one of the ways in which he fulfills Isaiah's prophecies. He will be the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53. However, in in, in this particular passage, it's not yet his time to suffer. It's not yet his time to die. He walks away in this case. And in verse 30, Luke may very well be hinting uh, that there's some sort of miracle has taken place here, that this is a miraculous escape. He just somehow, as though the Lord's blinded them, he just walks through their midst and leaves. The time has not yet come yet for him to die. This is not the place, this is not the time, and he walks right through their midst. Interesting as if to almost heighten their wickedness, uh, it's after they are all the way up to this hill before he, he leaves. He escapes the mob now. Nevertheless, it will eventually be his time to die. And he will do this in order to make many righteous. And this is not something for us to merely find fascinating. Interesting story. Jesus is the King of Kings, the scripture testifies to. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the eternal Son of God who came to earth as a man to bring many sons to glory. And after dying for sinners, he rose again from the dead. And he now commands all men everywhere to repent and bow the knee to him. Because he is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. We're called, repent, submit to this one, this king. We're called to trust Him as our only hope of forgiveness and our only hope of righteousness. This is the saving response. And so don't play with Him. He's not there for our amusement to find interesting. Well, that's fascinating. No. He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's to be worshipped. He's to be glorified. He's to be magnified. He's not to be just entertaining for us. So do not be deceived. Mere fascination with Jesus is a real thing. And all it does is mask unbelief. But it will be exposed one day. And So don't fall short of saving faith. Repent. Trust in Christ today. Call out to God for mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We confess that we all, we all fall short of honoring Christ as we ought. Truly, our Lord Jesus is worthy of everything that we are. Truly, every word out of his mouth is good. Truly, he is our only hope. Forgive us for how we lose sight of that. Would you produce in us reverence for your word, reverence for you, God. 
We thank you for the grace that is in Christ. We are reminded of our great need of it. God, I pray that no person here would fall short of true saving faith, including our children. As we look to share Christ and share the gospel with other people, may we call people to repentance and faith. God, we pray that you would work true salvation in our town, in our workplaces, all around us. God, we thank you for just your mercy to us. And we thank you for sending Jesus. God, that we, we pray that he would be rightly honored in our own hearts, in this church and in this town, and in the other churches in this town. God, I pray you'd wake us up from the silliness that passes for Christianity. I pray that pastors in this town would return to the word and preach it. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.